Welcome to Rocktober 2018 on the Mojo Radio Show. It's our busiest month of the year, as you can tell. We've put a lot of effort into the show. If you've listened to the last couple of weeks, you'll know that it's a bit different. It's long form. Some amazing guests, great shares, uh, some swag to be one. Maybe some lessons of rock, maybe a laugh or two, but guaranteed to be loads of learning, 31 days full of Rocktober mojo. Behind the console, welcome to week four, mate. It's getting away, isn't it? Can you believe we're up to week four already? What happened to Rocktober? Well, what happened to Rocktober, I think, was a Navy SEAL, a leadership expert, and probably a guy at the front end of productivity and performance, James Clear. There's been some absolutely... I mean, it's, it's, if you put three back-to-back, that's your trifecta right there. Yeah, big time. I reckon a couple of those will turn up on my all-time favourites list. It's a good point, you know, because I'm not sure... Because podcast podcasting is still in its infancy, many people, I think, are still coming to grips with how to use podcasts. Mm. And, folks, if you like the Jason Redmond show, he's our Navy SEAL who was struck in the face during a fight, a firefight in Afghanistan. If, for example, you like that show, and that is one you would go back to when you need some, I don't know, a kick in the pants, bit of bit of resilience, bit of grit, then there is a button on each podcast, and you can save that episode. So it will always be in the Mojo Radio Show part of your podcast app. And then you can go back and listen to it offline at any given time. And what's really handy is you end up with the best of the best. So if you listen to a thousand podcasts in a year, 
you might have 12 or 13 of the absolute crackers in your go-tos. You can save all those. So it's a pretty good point that I'm not sure if people are aware of that. No. In fact, Big, you're right. Podcasting is in, in its infancy. And but the problem I have with saving all these episodes is my poor old iPhone ends up chockers with all this stuff, great stuff that I, you know, I want to keep going back and listen to. So hopefully that's the next things on um, Apple's list is to come up with somewhere else I can save them. Yeah, it's a good point. I find myself going through photos each month and being brutal, either yes. putting them up in the cloud <laughs> or, uh, or send them somewhere else and getting rid of them because to keep a good library of podcasts, uh, if you want to save a few and keep a few to go into, it does take a fair bit of storage. True. But the good thing to remember is that they're always there. They're not going anywhere. Um, they're sitting up there on iTunes. Always you can go back to them, eh? The Mojo Radio Show. Time for some swag. Buddha Brew's back. Hey, we got, a, we got an email from, uh, from Greg Stock. Right. Who, uh, who's Stocky, been Stocky, Stocky, the stock star, Stockmeister, the, the Stockinator, <laughs> stocking, <laughs> stocking. <laughs> so if it old tights, we could call him Sheer. This is no, we'll him tights, sheer, sheer tights, legs, hey legs, legs. legsy. <laughs> we got an email anyway, and he said uh, he's talking about Rocktober, and he's talking about Jason Redman, and he said, "Loved your last interview with a Navy SEAL, brilliant." Part of achievement and the road to success is dealing with failure. Love those interviews where your guests talk about the challenges and total F-ups and how they got themselves back from there. Please keep up the great work. So, um, on your legs, nice work. Legsy. Legsy. Legs 11. So, do you want to send Legsy some uh, Buddha Brew? Well, it's not on iTunes technically, but I reckon he gets one, don't you? Well, Legsy, do us a favour. Hop onto iTunes. Put down a review because if you leave a review, you get the brew. So Buddha Brew 2 is a real coffee. So leave us a review on iTunes and let us know you've done it, just like Legsy did by sending us an email at info at themojoradioshow.com. Pretty easy. And we will send you a bag of Buddha Brew. Now, this is a beautiful roast from Byron Bay in New South Wales here in Australia. It's a real, real roast, and it's been done by the award-winning Fish River Roasters. They've taken the beans from Byron. They've roasted them, bagged them up, and all you need to do is rate the show, meditate, and then you can... Caffeinate. Oh, See what I did there? Man, the man, you should be working for Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd or something. You'd be a, you're a lyricist. Now, this is a classic. This came from a guy called Fine Cotton. Now, Fine Cotton, <laughs> if I'm not, if I'm not, a race if, I'm, if I'm correct, was a racehorse at the head of one of the biggest scandals in yes. horse racing here in Australia. Anyway, Fine Cotton wrote, Chairman, five stars, the show on curiosity and discipline are influencing me. It forms the question for me, do I have the self-discipline to be truly curious? In other words, you blokes make me think. Good on you, mate. Fine cotton. Give us your, uh, get in contact with us. Send us an email. Give us your address. And some Buddha Brew 2 is on its way to you. Thank you for the review. Hello. I'm Mr. Red. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a great treat right now. It's Ron Tober on the Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is truly one of my favourite authors. His name is Carl Honoré, and Carl wrote a number of bestsellers, and my faves are The Slow Fix and In Praise of Slow. Carl is an award-winning writer. He's also a broadcaster, and he also did a very highly rated TED gig, which you can find online at TED.com. He's kind of become the global spokesperson for the slow movement, and he travels the world teaching us and organizations how to power forward by slowing down. 
In Carl's words, when you use the slow gear, everything falls into place. You connect more, you create more, you focus more, you achieve more, and you become more. So, Carl, with great pleasure, mate, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Great to be with you. I have been following your work for well over a decade now, and just to put us all in the picture, you've become known for your work in the area of slow what, what was the provocation for you to start writing, speaking, and living about slow? Well, for me, it was a personal epiphany. I think that when we get stuck in fast forward, it often takes a shock to the system or, or a wake-up call, something that makes you realize you've forgotten how to put on the brakes, you're living too fast, and this is doing you real harm. And I think for a lot of people, that wake-up call comes in the form of an illness. You know, one day the body just says no cannot do this anymore and you you know I have a burnout or can't get out of bed one morning uh, my burnout or my wake up call is very different it was when i started reading bedtime stories to my son and back in those days i just was incapable of slowing down so i'd go into his room at the end of the day and speed read snow white right i was, I was sitting on the bed one foot on you know one foot on the floor <laughs> trying halfway out the door already speed reading these old stories and, you know, skipping lines, paragraphs. And I I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, which I don't know if anyone is a parent of, you'll recognize it, but any parent knows that the technique never works, right? Because our kids know these stories back to front. So my son would always catch me out. He'd say, daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story? What happened happened to Grumpy? And, And this really lamentable state of affairs went on for quite a while until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about, a book called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in Six Seconds. And I remember catching myself thinking, hallelujah, you know, that is a wonderful idea. I need that book now from Amazon, drone delivery. But, but then I thankfully had a second reaction, which was a real light bulb over the head moment. I suddenly thought to myself, whoa, has it really come to this? Am I really in such a hurry? I'm prepared to fob off my little boy with a sound bite at the end of the day instead of a story. And, and that was when I, I was like a, an out-of-body experience. I suddenly saw myself in sharp relief from the side and I realized that I'd lost my, I'd lost my way. I'd lost my compass. I, I, I'd lost my mind. I, mean, I, was, I was racing through my life instead of actually living it. And that for me was the starting point to investigate not only my own addiction to speed, but to understand the bigger context, to see why we had got so fast and if it was possible or even desirable to slow down. And that, for me, was the start of this whole journey into what has come to be known as the world of slow. Do you know what's interesting, Carl, is having read your stuff now for many, many years and having read The Slow Fix, which was the last book that I read some months ago and reread it again this week, and those books were maybe 10 years apart, I would think. Would that be right? Uh yeah, probably eight or nine. There was a book in the middle, which was about uh, parenting and education called Under Pressure. So yeah, yeah, my books tend to be four or five years apart. I'm not on the whack one out every every year. <laughs> but what's so- interesting is you just mentioned ailments and not being well, and you mentioned speed. Yet, talk about Dr. Wu and your back, which is where the slow fix starts, because... Even in that decade, it seems that even though you're aware of it and you became very, very well known for the slow movement and being a leader in that movement, 
even a decade later, you still had to deal with it. And Dr. Wu was the guy who pulled you into line because you had a bad back. Just take me through that situation with Dr. Wu. Yes, that was that would probably have been about six or seven years after I became effectively a kind of you know the global guru of slowing down. <laughs> and I, I, I found myself. I mean, I'd always had trouble with my back. I play a lot of sports and stuff, but I've never been that great at stretching. I just always had a little slightly troublesome back, and it began to get a bit worse. And I I had a long history of trying to quick fix it. So I would. I would have a problem and I would immediately rush out and find some kind of instant solution, some miracle, just had water remedy. And I, I, I tried everything from, uh, well, you name it, from massage to medication to I visited a witch doctor in Brazil. You know, if there was a box to tick to fix it back, I tried it, especially if it offered, especially if it offered instant relief. And, and of course, that never worked. And I eventually found myself lying on a you know, the the, 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 t- the treatment table at Dr. Wu, who is an acupuncturist I've been to several times before. And, and he said to me, you know, you're a man who's in a rush. You want to get better fast and it's not going to work. And I, and that was a kind of, a kind of second wake up call in a sense, because in many other ways, probably most other ways by that point in my life, I had embraced my inner tortoise. You know, I was walking the slow talk. I wasn't rushing. I'd moved, I'd moved away from the virus of hurry. And I was, I was again living my life rather than racing through and, and I was reading bedtime stories without deploying the multiple page turn technique at that point. But in this one corner of my life with my back, I still had this drive to get through it as quickly as possible to find the short, find the shortcut. And I, and there is no shortcut or very seldom is a shortcut when, when fixing complex problems, whether they're in health, in a company, in a relationship, it takes time. And I just, I guess I hadn't, I just hadn't got around to, to accepting the fact that I need to take more time with my back. And it was just that sort of wake up call with the, the back really becoming a proper problem. And Dr. Wu saying to me in black and white, you know, you, especially, you know, you as the guru of slow, need to slow down. It, it, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And that sort of set me off again on writing that, that book, The Slow Fix. The moral of the story, I think, is that slowing down is, is essential. I think we all need to do it. We all are yearning for it, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do. And in fact, in some ways, I think the process of slowing down and, and embracing this idea that you try to do things not as fast as possible, as well as possible, you do them at the right speed, that that idea, it, it's, a, it's a long-term, maybe it's even a lifetime process. You know, it's a bit like perhaps even being coming off or being an alcoholic, you know, you falling off the wagon and so on. Alcoholic, always an alcoholic, and maybe once a speedaholic, always a speedaholic. You can move away from trying to do everything faster. You can embrace slow and so on. But there's always the temptation, the danger that you might just fall back into the old ways, especially in a world that is constantly bombarding you with the idea that faster is better. So it's a reminder that you know, even even someone like me who has dedicated his life in the last ten years to this very idea can sometimes struggle to, to make it work. You know, I, I suspect that that's part of the human condition, that even the Dalai Lama probably goes too fast sometimes. <laughs> even. Uh, there's just so much gold in this, Carl, and I just that, that whole thing with Dr. Wu, I, I think it's one of the issues we have with the whole medical system, and we're not going to dig into that rabbit hole, but the whole medical system is you race in, you get your 30 minutes with the doctor, they prescribe something, off you go, and it's a quick fix. And no one ever talks about the cause or the build-up that has happened over years. And 
I think that's a really profound story that comes at the whole slowness movement from a different direction because you you were a self-proclaimed speedaholic. You said you ate fast, you you like to drive fast. And even you got caught up in that in that decade of going, well, I'm the guy. How do we go about making these changes? If you think about what we have to consider, how, how do we start to go, you know what, Carl's making so much sense, I want to start today. Where do I start? Well, I think it's, it's important to start really with small steps because slowing down the slow revolution uh, collectively as, as a societal level, but even individually as well, it, it's a slow process, right? You, you can't slow down fast, right? And I think this is one of the ironies and paradoxes of the modern world is that we're all so pumped up with adrenaline. We're all so impatient that we even want to slow down in a hurry, right? You know, and, and I, <laughs> I have, believe it or not, come across people who've said to me, you know, public events, they'll come up and say, oh, you know, I read your stuff I've, or I've watched your talks and I, it totally made sense with me. And I, and I thought, this is the time for me to do the same thing. I'm going to slow down. So I signed up for medication, a meditation course. And then I, I ran across some yoga, and you think, hang on a minute, you're, you're missing something. And, and I think that's, it's a cautionary tale. And it's, a, it's, and you talked about the medical world. I mean, that's a useful metaphor that we just, we go in with the best intentions, but we can struggle to do it. So what can people do? I, 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 I've got, you know, obviously over the years amassed you know, 50, 60, 70 tips for slowing down, fast tips for going slow. Uh, you know, I would always suggest we start by, especially in the world that we live in now, taking our technology and switching it off, you know, ring fencing a few sometimes during the day to push the off button, to move away from a world where you're living always at the speed of software and everything is about swiping right and left and just settling into a, a groove that is more human and more slow and, and, and deeper. So start using the off button a bit more would be a first suggestion. Another thing would be to drop something from your to-do list. You know, we're all chronically trying to do way too much. Look at all the things you have lined up for the next week maybe line them up in importance from most important to least important and start cutting from the bottom. Maybe just drop one thing. You'd be surprised how easy that is to do. It sounds difficult. I remember thinking, how can I do less? I actually need more hours in the day to do more. But when we sit down, I think, and really think and reflect on what we're doing, very often we realize that we're filling our schedule with fluff, just stuff to fill up the dead time. We're afraid of downtime. I mean, it's woven into our vernacular that not being active, just simply having time that isn't full or scheduled. is We talk about downtime, wasted time, all these um, negative terms. But actually, we need those empty spaces. So mm. allow yourself to think about what you're doing. Find something, find the low-hanging fruit on your to-do list and drop it, right? Just open up some time in your schedule. And a third tip that I usually give people is, is to try and integrate some slow activity, in your, into your schedule. And that could be different from everyone. It might be yoga, it might be knitting, it could be reading, poetry, sketching, something that just inoculates you against that virus of hurry and embed it in your schedule and use it as a break, something that will help you slow down. So those are three starting points. Uh, of course, that's just the beginning. You need to start rethinking you know, your approach to everything. And that's a bigger picture and a bigger question. But all of us can start right now uh, if we do it with a slow unhurried spirit, we can all start taking the first steps. I've heard you talk about doing a speed audit. How do I do that? Well, that's something actually that I use all the time even now and find it immensely helpful. That is simply just at 
random moments throughout the day, you just push pause and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to do a speed audit. And you stop and you look at what you're doing in that moment and you say, am I doing this thing at the right speed? Am I doing it too fast? Am I doing it too slowly? If you're doing it at the right speed, carry on. If you're doing it too slowly, because sometimes that happens, speed up. Mm. But usually defined, and this is the aim of the exercise, you'll often find you're going too fast without even realizing it. Just because we're so marinated in this culture of speed and we're so susceptible to other people's expectations and pressures and their own anxiety and rushing and hurry, it can rub off on us so that we find ourselves doing things fast without even having planned to do them fast just by default or by inertia. And so if you stop just in that one moment and say, okay, I'm actually doing this too quickly, I don't need to, that's enough to allow you to push the reset button, go back to doing that thing again, but doing it at the right speed, you know, slowing it down a little. Do you know what's funny, Carl, that I reckon a lot of people, when they slow it down, start to feel guilty. Because if you sit in a flight lounge at American Airlines or United and you look around the business lounge, everybody's doing stuff. They've got phones going, laptops open, they're drinking, they're eating, and that's what you do if you're part of the tribe. So to pull away from that and do an audit and go, well, I'm not at the speed that I want to be at, I reckon there's a whole bunch of guilt that goes with that. And the question I've got is how how does one work out the right speed? How do I know that the speed that I choose to be at is the right speed when it could be completely con- completely contrary to all those around me. What have you done or heard from people who've kind of worked out? Because you talk about the tempo, creating the right tempo. How, how do I know what that should be for me? Well, I think there are two ways to, to start measuring whether you're in the right tempo or not. The first is in the moment itself. If the thing you're doing, the task you're involved in is, is engaging you fully, if you're enjoying it, if you feel like you're doing it well, mm. if you're not distracted, if you're not distracted by other things, if you feel, you know, that sense of people talk about the sense of flow that you forget the clock and you're just in that moment. And I think we all feel that we can feel that in our bones. We can feel it physically. We can feel it emotionally, maybe even spiritually when we're in that kind of state. If you feel in that state, then you know you're in the sweet spot, right? You have hit the slow wheelhouse. You are doing it at the right speed for you in that right moment. Another metric for knowing whether you've done things at the right speed is to look back after the fact at your experience of a moment, right? If, if you could look back with a bit of distance and a bit of perspective and, and a bit of, you know, uh, you know, f- f- arm's length analysis, you can sort of look back and think, okay, now, did I get the most out of that moment? Because I think often now we're so, our to-do lists are so crammed and we're juggling so many things that we never actually stop to look back at how we experienced the thing that we just did or the thing we did mm-hmm. five days or even two hours ago, we're just already on to the next thing. But again, if you just take that moment, it doesn't have to be a, an hour's self-analysis. It can be, you know, two or three minutes or a minute even just to look back and think, okay, how did I, how did that meeting feel for me? How did that conversation with my partner or that bedtime story routine with my children feel this evening or last night? And I think at that stage, you get another feel for whether you did it right. And a third metric, and this is one that people often find surprising, but often is very telling is memory because there's an intimate bond between slowness and and living fully and doing things well and being in the moment and remembering them. And I think we all have that experience when we're stuck in fast forward, we're living a roadrunner lifestyle that we get to the end of the week, the end of the month, or, or especially the end of the year, head hits the pillow, you look back and you think, whoa, that was 2017, right? You, you know, I can't even 
what, what, I can't remember what I did. I can't remember what I had for lunch this morning or the, the last, last week or, you know, and I think when, when we move very fast and we're not there present, doing the thing at the right speed, doing it fully, giving it our full attention and the time it deserves, nothing sticks. Everything becomes a blur. So the, to turn it back to the, the metric, if you find yourself looking back on the last week, or the last month or whatever it is you're doing and you can't really remember the experience of it, you can't remember clearly what it was like or what you did, that may be another sign that you're going too fast. Uh, it, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with a guy called Benjamin Spall, who wrote a book about routines, morning routines, daily rituals, which has been very, very successful. And I'm wondering whether creating slow rituals is a way to break through that speed audit, whereby creating a ritual it then almost dictates the pace at which you do things. Is that is that a thing? Is there is there such a thing as like a slow ritual? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I think rituals are a, are a crucial part of a life well lived. That I mean, it comes back to our whole relationship with time. It seems to me in the modern world, especially, we have a deeply neurotic and unhealthy relationship with time, where we've created this weirdly sort of digital relationship with time where, where all time is the same. You know, it's a 24-7 culture. You can order a pizza at three in the morning. You can work at five in the morning. You can, you know, go shopping at two in the afternoon. You know, anything goes. It's not like if you go back to, say, you know, the pre-industrial era, for instance, where there were times set specifically for certain things. Even, even in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, you know, there was a time to eat. There was a time to rest. There was a time to mourn, all that sort of stuff. Now all time is the same anything at any time. And when you create that completely open space, if you have no discipline, no markers, it just becomes a free for all. And if the pressure is on to the time is money culture kicks in, it's about doing more and more with less and less time. Every moment then becomes a dash to the finish line. It becomes a race against the clock. And we're not going to go back to the pre-industrial era. We live in a digital era and, and there's a lot of good in the 24 seven culture if we approach it with the right spirit. But one way to approach it with the right spirit is to know where to put the limits to lay down boundaries. And I think it may sound artificial. It may sound even a little bit paradoxical to say we've got to schedule slow time or we've got to schedule unscheduled time, if you like. But in a sense, that's what a, that's what a slow ritual does. It says, okay, you're moving through this free-for-all temporal landscape when you can do anything anywhere in the world now. But now you've got a moment of ritual where you've got to stop. You've got to move into a different time dimension or time frame, a different experience of time. And you've got to dedicate yourself fully to this ritual. And that ritual might be something, it could be something religious, like a prayer, or it could be simply stopping and doing breathing exercises for two minutes, or it could be painting or whatever it is, right? But it's something that's there that, that obliges you and helps you at the same time, because I don't want to make it sound like a negative thing, that helps you at the same time to shift gears, because that's really what ultimately what this slow culture quake is about. It's about relearning the lost art of shifting gears. Sure, you need to be fast sometimes, and that's great. You know, I'm not a, an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness, faster is often better. I love speed, right? I'm talking to you from London. I live in a volcanic city, right? And I love the energy here. I play fast sports like ice hockey and squash. I love fast, right? But but slow is good too. And it's about shifting gears, moving through all those different registers, tempos, rhythms, and speeds. And rituals, I think, are a very helpful way to to, to get to that place, to be able to, to, to do that. It's interesting. You just mentioned how we get to the end of 2017 and go, wow, that was a year, it's gone. And in the book, Moonwalking with Einstein, it's a, it's a terrific book. And we've mentioned it a few times on the show, which is about, learn, can you become a memory champion? And 
One of the articles in the book, Carl, spoke about that very moment. You get to the end of the year and the year has gone by in a blur. And this guy had his own theory on how can you slow down time? And to your point, he said, the way you slow down time is to create more moments because how quickly the year went is all determined by how many great moments you can recall that emotively moved you or something that was significant in your life. And it seems to me that, and I'm trying to put a few things together here, that perhaps those moments created where you were in the moment of slowness, where you took the time to absorb a conversation, an event, a sunset, is an opportunity to create more moments where at the end of the year, you did do your best to slow time down. Have you come across that in your studies? Is this a, is that a, a fair hypothesis of drawing a few of the of your books together with Moonwalking with Einstein? Yes, absolutely. It's our experience of time when we look back is very much dictated by how we experience that time. So, if you've got uh, you go through a, a period of time that has is is studded with rich experience that were lived fully, lived deeply, then looking back, that time seems to have stretched out. It seems longer. Uh, so it seems slower in a sense, right? It looks, the, the year feels, you think, oh, well, okay, I did that, I did this. Well, that was a, a lot of, of things happened that year. But if you, if you rush skimming the surface and seldom pausing long enough to live any moment f- very quickly, then you have the sense of looking back and thinking, well, what actually happened? You know, it feels like the, the, that that year is telescoped down because there's very few things for you to latch onto and say, okay, well, yes, I remember that, or this it, it occupied a lot of emotional space for me. This took up a lot of my bandwidth. This moved me deeply. If you don't have those moments, then you look back, and I think the time seems shorter or faster in a sense. So yeah, it's a kind of it's a kind of backward retrospective game that we play with ourselves, and and it's one that we end up losing when we when we when we move through life too quickly. We've we've kind of been sold on this slow thing not being productive in a way, haven't we? If you think about the language, and you mentioned it earlier in the show, you talked about downtime or dead time. And then you hear things like, oh, if you snooze, you lose. The early bird gets the worm. Be a hustler. Live in the fast lane. And then the other side of things is that if you sit around and don't do anything, you're labelled as being someone who's not taking an opportunity or you're lazy. We, is it a sense that psychologically we've been sold on this notion that fasterer is betterer? Oh, absolutely. And I think particularly in the business world where it just you've listed a few of the expressions that reinforce that idea that, you know, you've got one speed in the workplace and that speed is turbo. And if you shift <laughs> down a gear, if you shift down a gear, you're roadkill, right? That's that's the kind of ethos <laughs> that, that reigns in much of the corporate and business world, absolutely. But I think that that, that is changing. I think that the tectonic plates are, are moving in the business world and that the, the corporate sphere is starting. No, it has been now for a few years. It's turning around a super tanker in terms of difficultness, but it's starting to, you know, it's been happening now for a while that the, the corporate world is coming around to the idea that slower has a role to play in the 21st century. I mean, just, mm. just a, little while, a little while ago, the, the Economist magazine did a, a big survey looking at the pace in the modern workplace. And they came to a very clear conclusion, which is that some things have sped up, but others haven't. And, and in fact, many things need, need, to, need to slow down. And the final, the final paragraph of that survey from The Economist is actually a perfect tracing with slow philosophy. It said simply, forget 
frantic acceleration. Mastering the clock of business is about using when to be fast and when to be slow. <laughs> and that's The Economist magazine. It's not Buddhist Monthly. It's not Acupuncture Weekly. Right? <laughs> it's the in-house Bible of the hard-charging, you know, most ambitious entrepreneurial, let's even call them fast people in the world who are coming to the same conclusion, which is that they have to slow down, that there's too much speed in the system and that slowing down is good for the bottom line. It's not. It's much more than just you know, cloaking yourself in, in, in trendy robes or making the company have a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's good for the bottom line when companies slow down or allow their staff to slow down because they make fewer mistakes, they become more productive uh, per hour, they become more creative, they, they, they develop more um, communication, there's more esprit de corps, more team spirit, they can deal better with customers. Things are got, have gone fast and companies everywhere are realizing it and are finding all kinds of different ways to put on the brakes. And The Economist, the, the example I give you is just simply an, an overview, uh, proof if you like, of how that seismic shift is occurring within the business world. It's not going to happen overnight because there's so much ingrained resistance to the very idea of slowing down a business, but it's, it's being chipped away and we're seeing more and more examples of companies finding slower paths and, and prospering as a result. We've been told that we need to always be on and we've come to believe that we've got to be on, got to be hustling, got to be doing stuff. Can we actually be off but be on? Well, I think we're, we can be off, but we switch on in a different kind of way. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here semantically, but if we use that phrase always on, that tends to mean what I would describe as on in a fast sense. So you're, you're connected to the grid, you're getting notifications, you're maybe working, you're probably juggling two or three things at once, you're, you're active, you're moving, you're, you're driving yourself forward, right? And you probably have some kind of goal or to-do list task that you're trying to achieve. Uh, you could be on in different ways, right? I think you could be on putting all of that fast stuff to one side. You could be on just sitting on a pier in a lake, right? Looking out into the distance and you can be on fire in that moment, right? You know, thinking, reflecting, creating, uh, building yourself, uh, making sense of the world and, and enjoying uh, a sensual experience of being in nature and the world around you. I mean, that that can be electric, right? That can be on in the most extraordinary sense of the word. So, in order to get to that kind of on, which I would describe as, let's say, a slow on, you have to be off in other. You've got to you've got to turn off fast on. Now, now it's getting complicated, right? But you know, you you, you turn off the fast, you switch off, you get away from the, the grid, the distractions, the overstimulation, the petty demands of, of of the trivial carousel of daily life, and you focus on being in the moment. And whatever that moment happens to be, you can be on a hundred percent in that moment. Absolutely. So it's, again, it's in, in a way. Is the map the same language of fast and slow? You're kind of shifting gears between different kinds of on and off, I suppose. Just just on that point, I'm curious. Tim Ferriss, who's got one of the biggest shows, big, big, biggest podcasts in the world, he talked about the – it's interesting he talked about it. He said that he'd always been caught up in the what and the how, but he's coming to realize that the where has actually got a lot of traction. And I'm wondering, even down to the point of where you live in London, you live in an area that you've described as being like a nice, slower area with coffee shops and a little village and so on. Is the environment that we have around us, how big a bearing does the wear have on our ability for slowness? It, it definitely has an ability. It has, it has an effect. There's no question. I mean, it's much easier to tap into that slow vibe in the middle of a 
a forest or on a remote beach in, in you know, in Australia uh, than it is in downtown Tokyo trying to get onto the subway at rush hour. Clearly, there's no, there's no argument that case either way. That's obvious. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that doesn't mean that you cannot also achieve a slow state of mind or a slow mindset in a big city. Uh, I mean, as you just described, I mean, I, I live in, in London. Yes, I'm not living in Soho right in the middle of things, but, you know, I'm still in a big city. There's a lot of buzz even in my neighborhood. But, you know, it's got a bit of sort of green. It's got some greenery. It's got some shops you can walk around. So so that makes it easier. But I can still go into Covent Garden and be right in the throbbing core of London and carry with me that same slow spirit, not get infected by other people's rush, still be walking through, not falling into the multitasking mania of daily life and, and still noticing things, still being aware of my environment, talking to people, paying attention. So you can get to that slow place anywhere. I think the where is part of the equation and it's obviously easier to be if you're in a mountain retreat or, you know, halfway up a, a, a cliff edge in a, in a national park in, in Canada, you know, obviously that's going to be easier, but that doesn't mean that it's anywhere near impossible doing it in a big city. And in fact, there, in some ways, you could argue that it's sort of easier in, in a big city. I mean, some, certainly if you move to the country, often you find yourself driving everywhere. Um, in a big city, there's a social – you maybe have more social connections. There are more people around. And if you play that card right, you know, s- social relationships are at the core of slowing down because they are by their very nature slow. You can't speed them up. And so you've got people – if you are open up to them and slow down and make those connections, you've got people around you more easily in the city to build a social network, friends and so on. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's not a black and white thing where you've got to throw away your iPhone and go live in a boffy in the highlands, right, to slow down. That's one, that's one form of slow, but it's not the only one. You can be slow in London, Sydney, Tokyo, New York, definitely, because people are doing it. Living in London and being someone who creates work that inspires people how do you how do you man we've talked about the fact that slowness is a precursor to creativity idea generation problem solving how do you where does that fit in your day carl how do you manage to find and create the slowness for you to create your own deep thinking or as cal newport would call it deep work where does that sit in your day well when i'm at home i'm or in london that is i have um i i, I alternate working between home and i have an office as well which is a actually belongs to a friend, uh, but it's a private office. So it's a, it's a room that I have to myself. And so whether I'm at home or in the office, I, you know, I, my technology is strictly rationed. You know, I have times when I completely switch off. All my notifications are permanently switched off so that even when I'm on, I choose when to go and see if there's an email or a text or a WhatsApp message or whatever. I don't, I'm not at the mercy of the the barrage coming from other people on their timetable. So it's, it's always all my, I have a tight rein on my gadgets. And, and I also make sure that I move back and forth between what I would consider that sort of faster state and the slower state. So I will take time during the day to go for a walk or for, to sit quietly, to just to do a bit of meditation or just simply do some breathing exercises. I make sure that I even because my work can be very solitary as a writer or somebody who's just sitting in front of a laptop dealing with people overseas. You know, I make sure that I have social contact so I go and speak to people. Um, you know, I've made friends with the, the people in the in the kind of administrative part of the office where I am who have nothing to do with my work, but I just, you know, I, I go and have a chat and so on. So I make sure I have that kind of slowness in my life. 
and the way I move around London is is slow as well. I, I, I have a car, but I seldom seldom use it. I, I, I either walk or I rollerblade a lot and I cycle. So I'm moving through the city at a human pace. And when I do that, I don't use, I used to, you know, go for runs and stuff and go rollerblading with music. I don't, I, I make sure that I'm a, to be safe. So I don't get run over so easily, but B just to not to have that distraction, to be in my body as it were, and aware of myself moving through the physical space and looking around as I go and so on. So I have lots of different ways that I've incorporated slow into my own life. And, and my way of doing it wouldn't necessarily suit all of your listeners. I mean, I guess when it comes down to down, slow is very much a, a bespoke game. You've got to design your own way of doing it, but I'm managing to to make the most of London. I love living here. I, 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 of course, some, there are times when I, it can feel like, you know, a, a bit too much. And I do, we do go away, you know, we, and when we go away on holidays, we go to pretty quiet, slow places. We just come back from, in fact, spending a week in, a, in an ancient longhouse in a gully in Dartmoor, right? Where there was no TV, wow. no Wi-Fi, no Wi-Fi, no, no phone signal. And, you know, we were able to just open the front door and go for long walks on the moor and then walk back again. And it was just incredibly, I mean, that was really slow and loved it. It was topping up the slow batteries and then you come back to London. So, you know, I, I, part of surviving and thriving in a slow way in London is getting out of it, right? And, and, and getting into that na- nature mode and, and away from it all as well. So that's, that's part of it too. I couldn't stay here all the time. I'd have to, I have to get out as well. And I do. In Praise of Slow was a, has, is an international bestseller. And I've heard you talk about In Praise of No. <laughs> Saying no must be a big part of this equation in order to find the space for slowness. Is, is, is that an important thing for us to keep in mind? That's absolutely vital. And it's a hard thing to do because for so many reasons, we're trained culturally and socially to say yes. You know, to, we, we don't like disappointing other people. There's the whole FOMO thing. We don't want to miss out. I think women especially are, are kind of culturally pushed towards just, you know, pleasing other people and not saying no and not rocking the boat. But, but just as all of us, all genders, I think we're all in the same kind of place where we feel like we don't want to say no. We feel the door will shut in our face forever if we say no. But that's not the case. And, and if you practice and just trial and error saying no a little bit, you realize that in a sense what you're doing is saying yes in a different kind of way because you're saying no to say a social outing uh, so that the next social outing you go on, you'll be there more more fully, right? You, you'll be there entirely rather than having gone along thinking, oh, I have to go to this party or I've got to go to this drinks or I've got to do this, that, and gone along slightly you know, deflated and not really there and looking at your phone and wishing you were somewhere else. Rather than doing that, you say to your friends, and I think it's important when we say no to explain the no, just a simple no, or even a no thank you. (laughs) It's not usually enough, especially in a world where everybody expects you or has grown accustomed to your saying yes. I think it's, it's, it's important to say why you're saying no to say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to, Say no, I'm saying no to this social event and that will make me a better friend, right? Or a better partner or a better parent or something because the next time I come, I'll be there, right? And I'll really want to be there. And I invite you to say no to me sometimes, right? You know, flip it back on the other person. Uh, and then I think a big part of slowing down, it has to be a collective step forward, right? That no man is an island. We're all so connected now. To slow down, you've got to, it helps to bring other people along with you. And I certainly, when I started slowing down, I had to do a lot of explaining. You know, I had to explain why I was no longer online in the evening or I was no longer going to be available for a work call on a Sunday morning, right? Or mm. I wasn't 
yes to every single social engagement. And 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 it it was a it took some explaining, and some people bristled at first and thought, hmm, are, you know, you're stepping away from me. But over time, I, I realized that every, pretty much everybody understood. People began doing the same thing in their own lives as the ripple effect kicked in, and you just that guilt that I felt at the beginning faded away because I realized that I was, by saying no, I was not only looking after myself, but I was looking after other people. And and I think those two things in hand, and that can help take away that guilt that we do feel when we say no. And so, yeah, so I do often say in praise of slow, it rhymes with in praise of no for very good reason, because no, no is where so much of this starts. And, and in fact, it, there's a quote, which isn't, isn't in the book, but which I often use, which, um, comes from the business world and is Warren Buffett, you know, the legendary investor. And he famously said once, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything, right? So there's the business case for saying no, right? Yeah, absolutely. It it seems, hearing you talk about this, Carl, it seems that what we're doing here in order to embrace slowness is taking control of our time. And it was a line that I highlighted in the book. And you said, people who feel in control of their time are more relaxed, creative, and productive. And it just seems that we're getting to a point where we don't feel like we have control of our time. And I think that feeling control is probably the key part. Is that at the real heart of slowness? It is, I think, because how we choose our speed, our tempo, how we move between fast and slow to suit us is entirely dependent on how much, uh, and how, how empowered we are, I suppose, how much temporal uh, autonomy we have, if you like, or how much control over our own time, ultimately, is what we have. And if you don't have control of your own time, then you're going to end up moving through your life at rhythms dictated by other people or by circumstance. And that's that's why it is absolutely key to take back control over your own time. Because if you don't do that, you won't be able to slow down. You won't be able to find the right rhythm, the right tempo for you. And, and in fact, that's why you know forward-looking companies are giving their staff more control over their schedule, more control over their time, because they realize that people who can dictate their own pace will deliver more at the end of the day, right? So if you say to a, a team and a company, okay, here's the final deadline, this is what we expect or hope you will deliver on that date. But between now and then, your time is yours. So if you want to come in at two in the morning on Friday night and put in a shift at your desk, that's fine. But if you want to leave at three in the afternoon on a Tuesday to go watch your daughter do ballet or your son, you know, run a marathon, you know, that's fine too as well. Because we understand that when you have control over your time, you will deliver a better result in the end. And I think that's sort of where the business world is gradually lurching towards it's it's you know we've got a long way to go but you can see it manifested in lots of different ways i mean flexi time working at home these are all other examples of businesses starting to seed some of that temporal power handing it back mm. to the well, to the employee because it's good for the bottom line and i think we'll move further and further in that direction not least because the technology gives us that flexibility if we use it wisely and i want to underline again that I'm not a Luddite, right? I, could, I talk about switching off and using your gadgets more wisely, but I don't talk about not using them. I have a, uh, you know, a MacBook and an iPhone and they're, I love them, right? They're, they're immensely helpful and they're great fun. <laughs> like you need to use 
wisely, right? And if we use them wisely, they can actually help us to be more productive, be more creative, and to, to take back control of our time. And I, I'm a techno-optimist. I, I feel like we're moving now. Anytime a new technology comes along, it takes time to work out the norms, the social rules, the protocols around those gadgets to get the most out of them. And at first, we go overboard. And I think we're, we've gone through that phase. We're, we're starting now to come out of it as people look for ways to put their own speed limits on the information superhighway. And you see it you know, right across the business world with you know, email-free moments or days or giving staff the, the right to switch off, you know, Volkswagen tweaking its mm-hmm. servers so they no longer send emails or receive them outside working hours. France has passed a law giving staff the right and companies of a certain size to, to switch off from the office when they go home at the end of the, you know, these things are starting to change all over the world, including in you know workaholic nations like the United States, where they're realizing that checking your email at 3.30 in the morning is just not good for you, right? Nor is it good for the company in the long run. So we're starting to see changes. That's in the workplace. We're seeing them socially as well as people come up with new approaches, new rituals that allow them to make the most of social media but not get hijacked by it. I, I don't know if this new ritual has reached Australia yet, but there, there's this thing called stacking now that people do. You see it a lot in London now and in New York where, where people go out uh, particularly young people, right? And I think that's key. I'll come back to that at the end of this um, anecdote. But the, the the idea of stacking is you go out, you're, you're sitting around the table having a coffee or a sushi or whatever it is, a sandwich, and everybody piles up their phone in the middle of the table in a stack. And whoever grabs their phone first to look at Instagram or send a Snapchat pays the bill for everybody around the table, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a nifty way of saying, you know, we like our gadgets, but we know that they get in the way and that we have this moment here to get Wow. we'll never have this moment again. Why spoil it by being in several moments at once? So let's just switch off. And, and I come back to the fact that this is a this stacking thing has bubbled up from below. It's come from the digital native millennial generation. They're the people who've spearheaded it. And I think that's very revealing because often mm. when we have about technology, we say, oh, all these people banging on about switching off and digital detox. They're just burned out baby boomers. They're people who didn't grow up with the net. They have different brains. No, that's not true. A child born today has the same brain as a child born before Netflix, right? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30, we don't, human evolution does not move forward that fast. And it means that kids today, young people today have the same needs, the same limits as we've always had. And that means that they need limits with the gadgets and they are themselves waking up to that fact. So the, this stacking thing is one example, but I, I do a lot of work in schools and so on. And it's amazing to me when I go into schools and talk to kids in that target, you know, tech demographic, how they are having this conversation all the time amongst themselves about where do we draw a line? How do we draw a line? How can we have our own digital blackouts? How can we be more together and pre- and distracted all the time. So that shows that the, the, as I say, the tectonic plates are shifting and that we will, I do feel we will come up with a, a smarter, more humane way of using these gadgets. And one thing that that will deliver is control over our time and it allows us to control it better than we've ever controlled it before. So there are so many reasons to be upbeat. If we stick on kids for a second, I heard you talk about the Prime Minister of Singapore who made a declaration uh, about he's... kids in school in Singapore can you share that story? Yeah, on um, the National Day of Singapore, I think it was a few years back now, the, um, and we're talking about Singapore here, right? The spiritual home of tiger parenting. Right? Kids are doing 20, <laughs> 20, 29 hour days, you know, always on their gadgets. And the Prime Minister of Singapore stood up on the National Day of Singapore and took the parents and teachers, I mean, the adults of that 
island nation to task. He said, we've lost our way here. We've lost our, our minds. We're driving our kids so hard, so fast that we're driving them into the ground. See, what our kids need to thrive in this modern, fast world is not to go faster. It's not to do more and more, to be more and more connected, to undergo more and more pressure. What our kids need to do is, he didn't use the word slow down, but the, quote, the quotes from his all about more time off, less homework, just playing, you know, quite a revolutionary thing to come from the mouth of someone in that position in a country like that to say, whoa, we have lost it here. And what kids need now is to shift down a gear. They need to slow down. And I think that I, I often use that example because people, especially in Western countries, think, well, OK, this slowing down thing, I can see that. That'd be good for my kids, for kids in general. I, I love the idea. I remember my own childhood. We had slow moments, and you know, it was we 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 could feel that it was good for us. But but the world's changed, right? You know, kids can't slow down now. If if my child in Australia or London takes his or her foot off the gas pedal for two seconds, they will be instantly squashed into the ground by a stampeding herd of children in the Chinese world, right? Singaporean children you know, doing. Our days pushed along by those tiger parents. But actually, you go to the Chinese world and they are saying the exact opposite. They are increasingly coming to the conclusion that things are too fast in childhood and kids need to slow down. So, you know, Xi Jinping, the president of China, said recently Chinese children need to slow down. They need to play more. They need to learn more through play. You go to South Korea, where I was recently, and there's a huge worry there about the excess speed for kids, you know, which is doing real, real damage. South Korea being the most wired, electronically connected nation on earth. They've set up a national network of digital detox camps where you know kids are sent to the to the forest for a couple of weeks, no gadgets, trying to wean them off this always on, always faster approach. So we're in this weird scenario in the West where we're where the, the the kind of Asian Chinese boogeyman is lurking in the in you know, the back of our minds, apparently this ex explosive ball of speed rolling through the world and f giving us no choice but to speed up our own kids. But when in fact you go to that part of the world and you realize that they have they have realized that there's too much speed in in childhood and that they need to slow down. And you know they're I, in China as well. Parents who can afford it are taking their kids out of the high speed, high stakes, high pressure education systems, sending them to slower schools, sending them abroad. You know the, the, they're. It's the same change is happening there. It's a different cultural context, but it's the same realization. It's the same epiphany is happening in homes and schools and in, you know, in politicians' offices as well. So it's, again, to me, it's more grist to the mill. It's more sign that we're all pointing in the same direction and that we'll all get there. Right? We, hope we will all get there. When we take our speed from the business environment, the speed of the office, deals, getting things done, the flow of emails and texts and in and out of meetings. When we take that into the home and the home is rushing, the home's short of time, going through agendas, getting things done, rushing from one thing to another, hustling, what impact is that environment having on our kids, their creativity, and in fact, maybe even their brains? Is What, what impact is that having? Well, I think not a very happy one, and you only need to pick up a newspaper really on any country in the world to see the shockwaves that are created by this. I mean, if you think of the time, money, and energy that we're investing in the next generation at the moment, we should be witnessing the emergence of the happiest, healthiest, most luminous generation of kids that have ever walked the face of the earth, but that's really not what's happening out there, is it? Just look at the news reports. I mean, you know, obesity levels are going through the roof. Mm. Uh, 
even athletic children now are suffering from sports injuries, serious, you know, ACL tears, broken shoulder plates at younger ages than ever before because we've professionalized youth sports. They're training harder, faster, longer than ever before. Their bodies can't take it and they're breaking down. And now the, you know, where the body goes, the mind follows depression, mental health problems, self-harm, substance abuse, yeah. eating, disorders, eating disorders. These things are rocketing, especially rocketing in the middle classes, you know, where children are living in a high pressure, high, you know, pressure cooker atmosphere where every moment of the day is a race against the clock, where their lives have become a race to perfection. And the pressure is, is telling, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to keep their head above emotional water. And even in, you know, in university, you're finding kids going to pieces in first year in record numbers, you know, having serious emotional breakdowns. And one reason I think is that they, they haven't had the time or the space in their childhood to to reflect, to work out who they are, to build strong relationships, to, to in many cases, to feel love for who they are rather than what they achieve or what, what what's on their CV. And and so they get out of the, they leave the home, they leave the nest, they go out of the world and they really struggle to stand on their own two feet. I mean, I, I hear even more and more these days this scenario from directors of studies or professors where they say they're in a, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a 19-year-old and he has a, a stellar resume, an incredible CV, looks great on paper, but he struggles to defend his corner, to fight for himself, to explain why he wants to change. And so what does he do? Increasingly what they do, believe it or not, is they whip out their phones, hit speed dial, hand it over to the professor and say, why don't you just sort this out with my mom, right? You know, and, <laughs> and actually the umbilical cord is not even getting snipped after graduation. You find big companies like Merrill Lynch now who are publishing what they call parent packs or having open parent days when mom and dad can come to the office and make sure it's just right for junior. Um, and, and at the most extreme end of the spectrum, you've got kids, you know, going in their early 20s to job interviews accompanied by their parents who are then trying to help them negotiate salary and vacation packages or, or ringing up afterwards and saying, you know, why, why, you know, why didn't Karen get a second interview? And you think, well, maybe the fact that you're on the phone explains why Karen didn't get, <laughs> didn't get to the next round. Um, but, you know, something else is getting squeezed out in all of this rushing and striving and trying to build the perfect resume and the perfect CV. And, and, and that is really that immensely magical, soaring thing that is the magic of childhood, right? That, that mm -hmm. music that we hear in children's laughter when they're at play, real play, the kind of play that children have had throughout human history, not the kind of play that many of them get now, which is play where an adult is standing beside them with a clipboard telling them how to play better and giving them a metric score on their play. I mean, real play. And when we hear that now, a child completely at play, um, you know, we, it sends a shiver down our spine and suddenly we're five years old again, jumping through a sprinkler or clambering over a fence in the back garden or whatever it was we used to do. And, and, and it's that m moment that, you know, William Blake talked about childhood is seeing a world in a grain of sand and holding infinity in the palm of your hand, that extraordinary capacity children have and still do, mm. appearing to a moment to forget tests, targets, timetables, and just inhabit fully a moment, right? You know, you know we've all seen it. Anyone's had anything to do with children, especially smaller children. We know you can be walking down the street with a five-year-old, your daughter, she spots a lady a ladybird on a rose bush, and she will stop there for 20 minutes, right? She'll give that ladybird a name. She'll weave a whole narrative, Icelandic proportions around it. And if, if the ladybird flits off to another bush, she'll go chasing after it, 
doing cartwheels, getting exercise. And we know science is telling us very clearly that in that moment of unfettered exploration of the world around her, in that ladybird moment, right, that our daughter's brain is on fire, right? She's building her brain in ways that a thousand hours of Kumon Tutor, thousand educational DVDs will never come close to touching. But the trouble is nowadays in our hurry up, you know, hyper scheduled, you must be able to measure everything culture. We see that ladybird moment and think, hmm, kind of looks like a waste of time, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we pull our way from that ladybird and we say, come on, hurry up, hurry up. We're late for ballet. Right. And, and, and that's, I think, where we go wrong profoundly now with our approach to childhood. And, and when we talk about slow parenting or slow education, it's not some wild slacker free for all where childhood has just come, you know, you're wandering around. There's no structure. It's some sort of Rousseauian pre-industrial. No, children need structure. They need to be pushed. They need pressure. They need to be tested. They need all that stuff. Right. But they need it in the right dosage. <laughs> and I think a lot of kids. A, too much of that side of the equation and not nearly enough of the other side, which is the slow side. They need the time and the space to explore the world on their own terms, to play freely, to, to take risks, to fail. They need social connection. They need time to be with friends. They need time to be with their parents when we're not all rushing to get to the next event, when we're not trying to build something that's going to help them get into the next school or the next project or you know, just, just being together. Uh, for the sake of being. And that's such an anchor of childhood development and also a joyous family life that it so often gets squeezed. I think not only do children pay a price for that, the price we've just talked about, but but so do grown-ups and parents. And I think that's why a lot of parents feel nowadays dissatisfied and, and saddened by the parental experience because it's lacking in that the milk of human kindness is lacking in that experience of just being together. And when we do have those experiences, often we have them on holiday. You know, we, we leave the work behind. We no longer have a schedule. And people come back raving about those moments where they just messed around with some sticks in a, in a lake or kicked, made sandcastles or baked a cake. And, and there was no pressure. We weren't doing something to impress anyone. We were just being together. And those are the moments that are slow and those are the moments that are too scarce, I think, for many people. And a big part of this whole slow revolution in the parenting and family sphere is retilting that balance. So we get way more of those moments and fewer of the, you know, let's rush off to Kumon and from there we'll dash off to do some tennis tutoring, right? That some less of that and more of the slow stuff. As as a grown up kid, being a Canadian, you'd love your ice hockey and your ball hockey and so on. Have you been able to incorporate slowness? into your own sport with rituals, routines? Is there something, is there a way that you approach your sport with all you know now? How do you bring slowness into it? And that's, that's an interesting one because people often think, they think business, well, that's all about fast. Sports is all about fast. But as soon as you talk to any athlete, you realize that they understand intuitively the power of slow, the importance of shifting gears. So sometimes you're training like a demon, right? You're pushing yourself to limit and then beyond, even beyond that. But that can't be your only mode, right? You have to have other gears. You have, to, you, have to, you have to rest. You have to allow your body to rebuild itself, to recharge the, the battery cells, to come back in order to make the most of the fast moments. You need slow ones. So any, any athlete, professionals especially, but anyone who plays a lot of sports, especially as you gain experience, you begin to realize that the body is, is not a machine that you just flick on and off. 
you know, like a computer you can leave on for 24 hours a day and come back. No, it's, it's, it's immensely more complex than that. And it needs slow moments. So I'm, I used to be somebody who never took a day off any kind of training. You know, I was always full on. Now I make sure I listen to my body. If something's you know hurting. I'll pay attention to it. I, 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 I train differently now. I have, I do yoga. I never used to do yoga before. I, I used to regard that as a waste of time. I think Tiger Woods in his pomp once said that he said, I just famously said, I hate yoga. It's too slow. Right. And, and I think I was from the same school, but actually the whole point of when you love yoga and fall in love with it, you love yoga because it's slow, not in spite of its slowness, slowness that helps you then. Cause you realize that, you know, develops your balance, your flexibility, and that allows you to be faster when you need to be faster in fast sports. So I, yeah, I've completely changed my whole approach to, to sports. And actually in the sport itself, I think this is something that you see in all great athletes is the one thing they all have in common. You think about football players or soccer players, right? So say, say Messi or Ronaldo in this moment, or, um, you know, they, they what do they all have in common? They're never in a rush, right? They're, they're they all, they always seem to have just enough time, no matter how fast the game is moving. And that's become a big part of how I think about how how I play my sports is that I'm not always looking to do everything as fast as possible. You know, I'm always thinking about, you know, when I can when I can go fast and when I can go slow. And it's OK to slow things down in a game because then you can then move forward more quickly. And that's what the great athletes do. They'll slow things down and then they'll move forward with superhuman speed. And take you out of the game in a blink of an eye, right? So I, I, I'm not Lionel Messi or anything, but you know, I aspire to, to, to the playing that same game of having fast and slow and and incorporating them. And I think if you look at, again, I say you look at any athlete in any sport as they gain experience, they get better. You know, they come out of their early twenties into their late twenties, they start to understand that the importance yeah. of shifting speed and, and knowing when to be fast and when to be slow. Coming back to that old economist thing it's when to be fast and when to be slow whether you're running a company or running a race you know just one final thing i'm just conscious of, of the time we have with you carl but one thing that i've been interested in speaking to people at the top of their game about their learning and it seems today that we are reading or listening watching and we're consuming but the question then is are we taking what we consume and making use of it to turn it into knowledge and eventually wisdom. And I'm always curious with guys like you to say, you're at the top of your game, you're in, you're leading this movement, you're a part of the movement and you're looking for the next thing. What's your process for reading, capturing learnings that you can then either utilize in your own world or utilize to be of service to others? How do you capture learnings that you can then use? Well, I'm a big, I'm a big reader and very omnivorous. So I read across all kinds of different platforms on the net, different publications that maybe don't necessarily align with my own worldview. So I try and spread my wings and cast my net as widely as possible. And I make sure that I read with full uh, attention. So I, you know, when I'm reading online, everything else is off. When I read a book, I don't have my phone beside me. So I'm, I'm trying to make that reading experience as fully present as possible so that in the, in the moment I'm actually uh, completely absorbing what's coming at me. At the same time, I'm, I've, ca- I've got, I kind of went back to taking notes I, for many years there through my, especially when I was working as a journalist, uh, you, you take notes, I suppose. Then I stopped and I started, you know, writing, I, I, you know, when I started doing research for the book, I was obviously taking notes, but I, a lot of the things when I wasn't 
specifically reading for a purpose. And I just sort of read and then I began to realize that it wasn't sticking. I wasn't remembering things. So I began taking notes for things that weren't, were not ostensibly for a, a project or I wasn't preparing an article or a blog post. I was simply reading for my own edification in that moment. So I would, on one hand, seek to read as with as much presence and attention as possible, but at the same time, just make little notes, you know, not massive voluminous notes, but just stuff that I could then go back to and, um, you know, just to, to, to spark a, a memory of something. And, and sometimes I would find that in my little notebook, I would see on one page something and it would, you know, three pages later or something else would spark off against it because I'd, another book I'd read had said something slightly similar, but I probably would not have made that connection without having the note down in, you know, pen and paper or in a physical form in front of me uh, to see the connection happen. So th- that's sort of how I approach um, my, my, my reading or the information. I, and and it's, it means that I enjoy the thing more as well. I, I feel that I enjoy it so much more with presence and I, get, I definitely get more out of it. And I think what you've reminded Robbo and I to do is to renew our subscription to Buddhist Monthly. Uh, it had completely slipped my mind, but um, I think we need to go back to that and um, get, our, get our subscription back up in order. Um, Carl, this has been terrific, mate. I It's been a real privilege being able to spend time with you. I know how much you've got on. Thankfully, you didn't say no to us and you were very gracious with your time from London today. For those people who want to learn more about the books, your work, your the the, the way you publish, where do you send people? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much to you. I've, I've, I've enjoyed our, our chat um, immensely. Thank, thank you. Uh, the easiest place to find me is is my website, which is mynamecom so www.carlhonore.com and there you'll find everything about books this video you know that's a good there's also my links page is a very good jumping off point to find what's going on in the world of slow because I, I link to all these different movements around the world and uh, and also the blog posts that I put just keep people abreast of all the things that are bubbling up and happening in in that sphere uh, so that would that would be the place to go. And if anyone wants to get in touch, you know, I, I, I write back to everybody, uh, not instantly, <laughs> hasten to add, but uh, I, I'm, I'm all about, you know, conversation and hearing from other people. So I'll, I'll always uh, get back to people in, in due course. If you, um, if you like to do things slow, Carl, do you use snail mail or email? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid I'm a... There's still something special about getting a letter in the mail that's not a bill, isn't there? Yeah. Or a fine. Yeah, or a fine. (laughs) (laughs) Carl, just just to um to wrap this up, just I'm just curious, you I know you were at the very, very forefront, if not the the, the, the catalyst, the first domino to fall in this movement around slow or slowness. And that was some, gee, 15 odd years ago, I suspect. Is it continuing to gather momentum or is it starting to flatten out? Because it went through a steep curve, I suspect. Is it continuing to, to grow and gather momentum? I feel that it is. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 there, was, there was clearly a surge in the early years as there always is because you're starting from a low point but I, I don't feel that in any way at any point have we hit a, a plateau it seems to me and I feel like I'm at the center of the, the you know the hub and the spokes and so on because people write to me and tell me all the time what's happening so I'm I'm au fait with the things that are going on in this world and and it, the slow world that is and 
they're happening, you know, more and more. I, I hear all the time, I, you know, every time I open up my email, someone's writing and saying, oh, you know, we're doing this or this is happening or have you seen this? And it, I don't notice any let up at all. And, and something else is happening as well that I think is very revealing. And that is that uh, people are doing things that are by their very nature slow, that fit very much into this cultural shift. But they, they may not even be using the word slow to do it. Right. And, and you know, one perfect example of that is the mindfulness boom. Right. And the, which is just roared through the, not the corporate world, the wellness world. I mean, everything is meditation, and mindfulness everywhere. Everything is about mindful. I mean, mindful is just another way of saying slow. Right? It's about saying being present, doing things. And, and, and many people in the mindful world do talk about the importance of slowing down, but they're not calling it slow. They're, they're just saying mindful. So this whole th- world of mindful eating, a mindful business, mindful, etc. And that, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with people not calling that slow because it is slow and that's what's important. And, and so I, I feel that wherever you look, people are doing this more and more. And I don't, I don't see any let up and I feel like I'm more optimistic now than I was 15 years ago when I first tabled this idea because I, I'm in the middle of it and I see it growing. I see it evolving. And it's across every field of human endeavor. That's another thing to hold on to here. This is not just people slowing down with food or slowing down with whatever sex or education. They're doing it in everything. You know, just this, just this morning, somebody sent me <clears throat> something saying that uh, BBC Three is now going to set aside BBC Three, the radio station in, in Britain, mm. is going to set aside a dedicated slot every week to um, slow radio. Uh, and so, we have, you know, using the radio as a way to slow people down. They've been doing it, up, you know, up until now. There's a whole slow TV movement, you know, which has been on BBC and it started in Norway. You've got the United States now. But slow radio is really catching on. And just, you know, I, literally it was today. I, just, I haven't read the article, but someone sent me a link saying the BBC has announced that BBC Three will henceforth have a dedicated slot. I'm not sure exactly how long it will be, but, you know, it's there. And that, again, shows it feeds into this, this shift, this, this change that is – so profound and so utterly necessary and so wonderful, right? It's, it's, it's all good. There's nothing bad it about it. It is all good. And I've got to say, I, I, for our listeners, they are, in praise of slow, the slow fix, uh, great reads. They are profound. They're usable. They're practical. Your TED Talk is terrific. And I think just to wrap this up, Carl, uh, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but what I what we love about having great guests like yourself on the line is giving us great content, but also the humility to say, look, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm at the center of this thing. I'm gathering information. I'm sharing it to help people. And that humility was summed up when you were writing In Praise of Slow on your way to a slow food event and you got done for speeding. <laughs> and having heard you tell that story, I just thought, you know, the humility, and it goes back to something you said in this show, is that we're not all perfect at it. We've got to find our own tempos and it's a constant, it's a constant challenge. So, mate, thanks for the work you do. I, I think it's terrific. I, I love hearing you speak. This has been a real treat. Thank you. It's been a treat for me too. Thank you both. On the Mojo Radio Show, it's Rocktober. Hey guys, this is John Karabi and Marco Mendoza from the Dead Daisies, and it's Rocktober, bitches! You're listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Turn it up! So, 
With that great interview under our belt, does that make Carl a honorary member of the Mojo Radio Show? God, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Be good for his resume. Come on. Now, we are always looking for people who have their mojo working and are examples of people who are challenging the normal paradox of success. Now, there was a story in the New York Times about Rory McIlroy. Do you know who he is? No. Should I? Well, not unless you're a golf fan because he's one of the no. best golfers in the world. Right. Snooze. This t- anyway, <laughs> he's, bl- he's bloody good at what he does. This story is about how he's learning to be successful at success. And according to the New York Times... It said, Rory McIlroy has found essentialism. He reckons it's a helpful tool in his journey. McElroy said he found his own guide for pruning his life in the book Essentialism by Greg McGowan. And the subtitle is what really got McElroy in. It's The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. He said, the big thing I had to do was get to the point of figuring out what could I remove from my life to make my life more simple. It helped me to learn and say no. Now, do you remember last Rocktober, we had the author, Greg McGowan, of the book Essentialism on the show? Indeed. Here is a little Rocktober rewind with Greg McGowan and a piece just, how, how do we put essentialism to work in our own day? One of the, the, the micro habits that I've learned and found very helpful uh, as, it, as it pertains to diet, because that's the subject we're riffing on, uh, is is to write down everything you eat. And that's it. No big diet, you just write down everything you eat every day. And you do that every day. And you just watch what happens when you've done that for a week, for a month, for a year, for about over five years. You find that this, this tiny change means that over, it doesn't even take years to be honest, but over certainly over years, you, you, you're totally eating differently or thoughtfully eating less but better, which of course we know is this the great design principle of essentialism, less but better. And that's because of that tiny change in the things you do often. And so I mean, quite literally, people should build, you know, in, in whatever app they use or, or on paper but, or in Word or something, you say, here are, the, here are the daily checklist items that I've carefully selected and thoughtfully connected to these long-term goals, this 100-year vision, your, your 90-day goals from the personal quarterly offsite, all of that, and, and see if you can track those tiny changes so that each day when you wake up, you're not just going, oh, my goodness, i got everything on my mind and I have no idea what to do. You just go, I'm playing the game. I'm going to go through these items I've previously decided to, to focus on and work through them a little bit every day and see how the cumulative impact of, of, of routinizing small but essential things have over time. I mean, the cumulative impact is so much greater than any, any attempt to massively, hit heavily, hard any single item on that list. That's what I've learned, and I believe it's such a critical insight to actually executing on the practices and promises of essentialism. I've got to say, this goes back to something we said at the head of the show, is it is really good with with podcasts because you can go back through the back catalogue. Like you said, I don't know what episode number that was, but I'll put it in the show notes. But you can go back because Greg McGowan's show on essentialism has never been more important than I think in society right now. But that Rocktober last year was just wall-to-wall gold. And I think this year has kept the the standard up, hasn't it? I think we've raised the bar. (laughs) 
31 days of pure mojo. Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. So there are not many artists that can cross over every genre. So rock, R&B, hip-hop, heavy rock, metal, mm. easy listening, mm. and country. Mm. Uh, but this guy is very Mojo Radio Show. Do you like Kid Rock? I don't mind Kid Rock. At his finest, absolutely. There's a lot going on with this guy, and he is the thing I love about Kid Rock. Not only his music, but it's how he approaches his world and the art, and he manages to cross over to every genre consistently. And I just like his sort of attitude to, biz- to the business of rock and roll. He just loves music. He loves the art of writing. He loves the song. He loves the tradition of what goes back. He respects the guys that have gone before him. And the other thing is that he won't conform. And he's a guy that from a very early age has always done what he wanted to do. And he works damn hard for it. This is a little piece from an interview he did with Dan Rather. And I'll put the link to the clip in the show notes. But when asked why, why has he been so successful, here's what he said. Hard work. I'm not the best-looking guy in the room. That's pretty easy to see. (laughs) Um, Didn't have the most talent in the room. Um, Wasn't from anywhere special. Didn't have any connections in this business. Nobody in my family at all. Hard work. You know, just just as an aside, Google uh, Kid Rock uh, Led Zeppelin tribute and you'll find Kid Rock uh, at a tribute to Led Zeppelin in the States doing a version of Ramble On, probably one of the best cover versions of that song I've ever heard. He just nails it completely. The interview I'm going to put up on the show notes with Dan Rather is... It's fascinating. I mean, I went in there and I started looking at... Could we find a song that was about slow? And I've always loved his track... Slow My Roll. Mm. And I thought that'd be a great track to finish with. And then I started watching this clip. It got me completely sucked in. He is, it's, it's a very, Dan Rather is a very, very good interviewer. And I thought this interview had loads of gold in it. Something else that I just think ties back to this show and the journey we've been on through Rocktober week four is that Kid Rock, surprisingly, is an essentialist. And if we go back to what we talked about in our Rewind, here's another classic, classic piece of Kid Rock that talks about his version of simplicity and essentialism. I live in a double-wide trailer. It's not like I require a lot. You know, I've learned to downsize through the years, and it's really made me more happy, but I'll sell everything living at double-wide, but I'm not giving up that airplane. <laughs> and <laughs> That I can understand. But a question, given what you've accomplished, why live in a double wide? What's that all about? It comes in two weeks. I'm a very impatient person. Comes delivered to the door in two weeks. Can customize a few things in there as, as, as you go along. Can put a, a cool wrap on it. I wrap mine in mossy oak. Very easy to clean. Simplicity at its finest. Sure, you don't have some of the finer luxury things like big thick shag carpet and, you know, nice big doors and this, that, and the other. But I'm like, that stuff's never really meant a lot to me. I can get a new dishwasher, stuff like that that's very easy, but yeah. it's also, you know, it's a great conversation piece, you know, because, you know, I go to a lot, see a lot of people in my business, you go to these houses, and I'm like, where do you start in this thing? Like, how many times do you use the movie theater? Like, you know, I've, I've built one, like, I maybe went in there once, you know, usually because I was too drunk and couldn't find a bedroom. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, it's just like a freaking maintenance nightmare. You know, I'm just trying, I'm just 
figuring out what really makes me happy. And I'd rather have land and things of this nature and maybe some cool cars and, and my plane, of course, and stuff like that. And, and, and really not have any worries, have to worry about if things are going to go south. And, if, you know, that trailer burns down or blows off the mountain, order another one. It'll be here in two weeks. He's not kidding around, is he? I hope he doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> but it's funny, right at the end of the, sh- at the, end of the interview, yeah. Dan Rather talked to him and said, I came here with a series of questions in my mind mm. about who's behind this man. But he said, I think I've answered a lot of it in the simple saying, you go deep, Hoss. And Kid Rock said, that'll be on a T-shirt by Monday. <laughs> but when a guy like Dan Rather looks at, you look at a guy like Kid Rock, sitting in his trailer with the music he plays, what he does. For a guy like Dan Rather to say there's a lot more going on than people give you credit for, I think is the highest praise. And I think it's quite, I think it's quite humbling for Kid Rock, as you'll see by the way he reacts at the end of it. But I thought it was a pretty cool way to finish the show, to take mm-hmm. a song about slow, put a bit of rock behind it, and this is Kid Rock with one of his hits called Slow My Roll. Right. <laughs>
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.